Hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to have you here with us again. And thank you for all the questions that you keep sending in, whether uh, feedback or uh, comments on the articles and, and episodes that we keep sending out, or questions you'd just like us to address. And they kind of bank up. And every now and then we feel like we just need an episode where we deal with some of the more important and more meaty questions that have been sent in. And this is going to be one of those episodes. Philip, we've got three really good meaty questions, and I don't know even if we'll get through all of them. But how about we see how we go? Well, it depends how slow you are in speaking. Exactly, and and whether I manage to cut you off. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. The first two questions are, are from Joel, um, who's a young man in ministry and who's posing some interesting questions. He's trying to think through different aspects of ministry. I'll read you the first one because he's thinking about what's important in ministry and what's maybe contextual. He says this, As far as I'm aware, it seems as though Philip had a lot of gospel growth, amazingly, with campus Bible study compared to many of the other AFES groups at the time, which didn't grow as much. This seems to be because he prioritised preaching the gospel clearly on campus. I'm sure that wasn't the only factor involved. What were the factors involved and what of them are biblically mandated ones, i.e. for everyone to do everywhere? And what were the Australian slash Sydney specific ones that were contextual? So I guess, Philip, this is a question about what happened, about history and about reflecting back on those things. It's difficult in that regard because no one will know everything that was happening and it's also difficult to to know your own history, especially within a time frame. You know, history's best written a generation afterwards when the dust has settled a little bit more and history written by the people involved in it always has just the whole problems of bias and perspective. Um, justifying some... justifying your own actions, kind of writing history to yes, sort of suit yes, yourself. Yes, yeah. and also sometimes the person in it, such as myself, we were too busy doing it to actually have stood back and reflected exactly what was happening that we were doing. I mean, it's not that we were acting thoughtlessly, but we didn't have the time for reflection that a historian needs to balance all the factors. So that's the first point. Second point I want to say about it is some of the most dangerous people to ever listen to on this topic are the people who have apparent numerical growth. The person who plans a church and sees it grow and it becomes large, it becomes a mega church, generally gets confused as to why it has happened, but is widely listened to because it happened. And I am very sceptical of other people who recount how they were able to achieve so much under God for the following ABC reasons, and ABCs generally their prejudice, their, their pious wish and hope, their, their theory... It's not actually historically, sociologically or whatever the real reason. So I'm wary of others doing it, so I'm wary about myself doing it. Next is to say I'm a sufficient realist to know that there were certain factors at New South Wales University in the second half of the 20th century which uh, gave certain advantages to how things grew. Factors like every year... 
50 or so people would come down from the country to the city to study at New South Wales Uni. And if you just stood at the door and captured them, that 50 or so Christians, that is, if you just stood at the door and captured them, your church grew by 50 people every year. Now, that's a comparison of church compared to other churches. But, you know, our church grew very rapidly, it would seem, compared to the local suburban church. But then it, the transfer of 50 Christians into your church every year, you should grow. <laughs> you know, that's, that is a decided advantage. I mean, the suburban church would need to have 50 new mothers every year and then wait 20 years for them. I mean, it was a terrific advantage that had little to do with the gospel that I was preaching or the way I was preaching. It meant that we did capture them, but it's it's not a great model from which you can draw conclusions. However, Joel asked the question in comparison to other AFES groups at the time. Now, again, there is a contextual advantage. During that period of time, the Anglican Church in Sydney did not suffer the falling away of the nominal Christianity that the rest of Australia did suffer. We did suffer it, but not to the same extent. Why was that? Well, because Sydney Anglicanism took its stand for biblical faithfulness, it always done, but Anglicanism across the rest of Australia was dominated by liberalism and by Anglo-Catholicism. And so culturally, the Anglican Church of Australia were the Anglophiles, the people who loved Mother England, rather than the people who were loving the Lord Jesus Christ. The two things get mixed together. But Sydney Anglicans chose away from it. It was Archbishop Goff came into Sydney and when he arrived, he, he tried to shift the view of Sydney Anglicans that Archbishop Mole had created by saying that he was an Anglican first and an Evangelical second. From that moment on, his time in Sydney was limited because the Evangelicals were appalled by this. And as when Sir Marcus Lone then became the next Archbishop, very early on he said he was an Evangelical first and an Anglican second. That statement really was where we stood. Whereas I think across most of Australia they would say we're Anglicans first and then Catholics or Liberals or whatever party you wanted, they would say, well, we embrace everybody. Well, that meant that the heart lay in being part of the British Empire. And because, uh, you're speaking about Anglicanism, but because Anglicanism within Sydney as evangelical Anglicanism was strong, it meant that evangelicalism, relatively speaking, was strong in Sydney more than it was in many other capitals. So not just talking about Anglicanism, but it meant that Sydney evangelicalism was much stronger than it was in other places. Exactly, that's right. And that meant that there were more keen Christian students coming to university, being sent to university from Sydney churches as well. Yes, exactly. Remembering Anglicanism is the largest Protestant denomination in Australia, I'm not for a moment thinking that it is the the best, the only, or anything like that. I'm just saying it was and is the largest. 
So if you've got the largest Protestant denomination being evangelical in your city, then you'll have more evangelical students arriving on the campus. Whereas Melbourne, for example, not even the Baptists were thoroughly going evangelical, a long liberal tradition in Baptists in Melbourne, and the Anglicans were moving away from evangelicalism, and the Uniting Church was all kind of coming together and the Presbyterians having to reform themselves, very hard to have the same size of student group. So, yeah, I mean, at that time, in, say, about 1990, when I saw an account, the average size of a Sydney Anglican parish was 180 members to coming up on Sundays. The average size of a Melbourne Anglican church was around 50 we were much, much bigger. But not only were we much bigger, we were nearly all evangelicals. Whereas in Melbourne, it was a minority of parishes that were evangelicals. So, yes, it was easier to do student work in Sydney than it was to do uh, student work in other cities in Australia. Um, and so I can give my theories as to how I did it, but you've got to look and be realistic about what was the situation abroad. However, even within Sydney, New South Wales University went ahead faster than, I think, the other campuses. And there are elements that you may need to look into to try and work out. I mean, one of the key things was our movement away from the student-led model that we inherited from Cambridge at the beginning of the 20th century, which meant that every week campus Bible study had the same preacher speaking through the scriptures compared to the public lecture system of the evangelical union that I went to at Sydney University when I was an undergraduate, where every week it was a different speaker and they weren't always expounding the Bible. They were often talking on topics. And so... The consistency of program is an important element as to why campus Bible study grew and thrived on New South Wales campus at the same time that the AFES group, the Christian Union, on the same campus declined. It was a fairly clear comparison of two products or contrast of two products and going along each week to a lecturer that you didn't know who it was going to be and you didn't know what they were going to be talking about and why, compared to going along to hearing the next chapter of the Bible expounded to you, it was a better product. And it also flowed over into a consistency of approach and leadership and general quality in the ministry because you had theologically trained, experienced ministry people working with students and driving the ministry as opposed to the student leadership, being which has to be refreshed, refreshed every year or two and consists of 20 or 21-year-olds who, who really don't know very much. And so the, the sense of the nature of the ministry being a more sustainable and good quality ongoing ministry is obviously going to be different. And it's, it's one of the issues that, of course, AFES still struggles with around Australia is how to navigate student leadership and student involvement and the involvement of long-term staff who really anchor the ministry and drive ministry and it was that was one of the factors at, at CBS I think you're I right. think that's right the student committee is always a novice because you're only there for one year and so you're just learning your job when your year's finished and the next novice gets elected as the next president 
it's very hard for them to do a good job. It has the advantage of their ownership and their energy that comes from ownership, but that is not that hard to create amongst students with a ministry-led model. Another factor is, unlike AFES, CBS had its own church, and unlike other campuses, CBS, or New South Wales Uni, had an evangelical college. Now, there's also one at Macquarie Uni, and Macquarie Uni had its church, but Sydney Uni, Western Sydney University, Newcastle, Wollongong, they didn't have a college like New College at New South Wales Uni, or Robert Menzies up at Macquarie, where the college had been set up to house and encourage evangelical students to come and live, which created a basis for a uni church which ministered to the residential students and the overseas students. And they, as students, are better placed to do Christian ministry on the campus than the commuter students, who tend to get off campus as quickly as they can, some of whom have one and two hours travel each day, each way to get to university. So their commitment to student work is much smaller, and that's understandable. Whereas to have a large university church helping minister to the commuters was a terrific advantage. So all of these are just social factors that are involved which need to qualify the next bit that I'm going to say, which may be just nothing more than my prejudice. Tell us your prejudice. No, maybe (laughs) nothing more than that. (laughs) With all those caveats, we'll bear that in mind, Philip. Tell us what you want to say. (laughs) Well... We did take a bolder and more aggressive, there must be a nicer word than aggressive, um, approach to evangelism and to the rejection of the cultural mores of 20th century, late 20th century student world. We did not accept the kind of push away from propositional revelation and the scriptural authority on issues such as the uh, social gospel or issues such as feminism or the sexual revolution, but rather we did boldly proclaim what the scriptures were saying and engaged with the university at the level of persecution rather than accommodation. And so, yes, we grew more than the other ones, but we were hounded and, and attacked by the university authorities more than the other ones as well. And I think that's part of the willingness to stand up and be counted and to fight for what we're doing. Now, again, that was easier with a full-time staff member on campus rather than a travelling secretary advising a student committee on how best to negotiate the situation of their campus. I was regularly in trouble on the campus with the other chaplains and with the university authorities and with the student councils. It's interesting, though. That's not a contextual sort of tactic. It's not as if you decide, look, in order to make progress here, we'll take the university authorities on. That'll, that's what will work here if, we, if, we're, <laughs> if we're more polemical. Yeah. It's a convictional approach to ministry everywhere, that the gospel as you preach it is always both yes and no. It's always a wonderful yes from God 
uh, and a promise of salvation, but it always critiques the world and it always calls us to not be friends with the world. And that means that when we do preach the gospel that way, you end up being hated just as Jesus was hated. Yes, that's right. And it would have been the same on any campus I went to. Or any parish or any church. That's right. But it, it's funny. It's like this word inclusive. Inclusive such a funny progressivist ideal. There's nothing more inclusive than the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We'll include anybody, doesn't matter how wicked, evil, immoral or degenerate they are, under the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Adolf Hitler could be saved. However, we are also exclusive. The idea that you can be put in one camp or the other, it's exclusive in that it calls upon people to repent or they will face the judgment of an exclusion from the presence of God for eternity. And so at the same time of being the most inclusive, we're the most exclusive. It meant that we can be persecuted for both. We're persecuted because we're excluding people in an age in which everybody has to be included. But then we're also being attacked because of our proselytism. We're speaking to people of other cultures and of other religions, inviting them to join us. And so we're attacked for being inclusive and we're attacked for being exclusive. If you preach the gospel, you'll get attacked. That's the bottom line. So to come back to your question, Joel, yes, it is gospel preaching that in a sense is the important factor. Gospel preaching that's clear enough and bold enough to get you attacked, for people to understand what you're saying negatively as well as positively. But yes, as I think Philip has pointed out, there were lots of other contextual factors involved and how they all worked and what were the most important ones, perhaps history will eventually say. Philip, we might move on to the next question, and it comes in response uh, to our discussion about pastors and pastoring and the function of pastoring. We, we keep getting more questions about that. Uh, this one's from Paul. He writes a really thoughtful and excellent email, which I can't read all of. It's, it's too long, but I'll read you some of the important bits to give you a sense of the questions. Um, he says, one of my overwhelming feelings by the end of your Pastoring the Flock interview was your negativity towards any sense of office. In fact, Tony said right at the end, uh, by seeing how functionally the New Testament talks about congregational leadership, it helps us to stop driving a wedge between the pastor, elder bishop, whose office places him on a kind of pedestal, and the rest of the congregation who are just like the recipients of his ministry. And that was the end of a quote. And Paul says, it made me go back and chase how you use the word office throughout the article, and every single use is negative. It's not about the office, it's about the function. My problem is that this creates a false dichotomy. And he goes on in his question to outline what he means. And essentially, he means that the person who has a task, and I'm quoting again, the person who has a task holds a position of significant authority within the life of the congregation, whether you want to give that position the title of an office or not. And there are quite a few young men over the ages who have already hoodwinked themselves into misunderstanding the significance of their task or position in relation to other people. I think many who hold the task, but who are theologically committed to the fact that they have no real office, will be blind to the influence that they wield. I know so many young men who think, I'm just like you in lots of good ways, who at the same time are unaware of the effect of their position on the relationships that they have. 
Now, Paul goes on and discusses authority and talks about authority, and I think that's probably the key question. This is a very good question. We didn't talk all that much about office, except to probably kind of fairly negatively refer to it as, a, as referring to rank or position or title. Let's dig into Paul's issue, though. To what extent is the task or function of becoming a preacher and a teacher in a congregation that you are appointed or called to as an overseer, as an elder who is an overseer or a minister, how does that create a position or a sense of authority? How do we understand this idea of office? Oh, I think Paul's exactly right. Part of the good things about having questions is corrections, nuancing pushing further the discussion and, and so I'm very glad to receive this and this one's a classic example of exactly the kind of further discussion which I think is helpful. You can't regularly teach other people without becoming their leader. Whatever you call it, the task itself carries authority with it. And so, yes, the person who regularly preaches will have great authority within the church. Our church is led by the word of God the Word of God is taught to us by our teachers. Our teachers are teachers because they're teaching, not because they're being given a title. But if they are teaching, yes, they will have great authority within the church. Now, the authority is even greater when they're teaching God's Word because God's Word is the ultimate authority and it's hard to hear God's Word being taught by somebody without something of the authority of the Bible kind of slipping down into the teacher. It's, it's like those, those study Bibles that have notes down the bottom. They're dreadful because the authority of the text kind of slides down to the footnotes. And when you're in a discussion group with people, you'll find they'll quote the footnote as if that's part of the text. It's a dangerous association. So I, I think it's absolutely right. And we need to recognise that authority comes from the activity. The activity alone, without authority, Paul's right in criticising that. That's nonsense. That's a false dichotomy. But the activity is what gives the authority, not the institutional appointment. Now, as you are appointed within a group of people, within a congregation, to be the person who has oversight, who has that particular responsibility, and who exercises that responsibility mainly through teaching, through teaching, instruction, correction, rebuke, warning away the wolves, teaching the flock, feeding the lambs, that creates a position, it creates uh, an ongoing web of relationship between that person and the congregation that we call office or we call role or we call their position. Uh, and you can't have that ongoing authority and responsibility without that kind of position or role or office naturally being entailed within it. I guess what we were pushing back against is the idea of seeing position and appointment to a particular title or rank as being the essence of it. We were trying to push into the fact that it's the task or function that's the important thing and the authorities and responsibilities that are attached really come out of that, out of the responsibility to do that task. Oh, I, I'm not sure I agree with you there. I think you can have all that authority without any position or role or appointment. That is, the person who regularly teaches, even informally, will become the leader of the group. Yes, that's true. It just I, goes with the task. It goes with the task. But as 
congregations, bodies of people organise themselves over time, they come up with processes, structures, normal ordered ways of doing things such that when they come to appoint a new teacher, preacher, overseer to this congregation, there are forms of action and procedure they go through. There are interviews, there are applications, there are procedures of ordination, there are, you are appointed to a particular place, you are given that title, you have that role. There are formal structures that surround it. And I'm, I quite agree with you that you can have the authority and actually exercise it without belonging to any of those structures. But the best way to understand those structures is as an expression of and an entailment of the authority and responsibility of the task. I think that's what we're saying. Does that make sense to you? Well, uh, that's what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely to use the collective we. <laughs> um, I, I just think it is more charismatic than structured. But I'm happy with your assessment that structure does come out as a result. My problem is that the structure can hide the lack of authority in some people, the charisma can hide the amount of authority Absolutely. in some people. Absolutely. And so it'd be lovely if the formal structures truly reflected the task. But they don't always, and they, they can't They can't perfectly. But to understand this, I guess my point was, to understand the structure, to go off into a, into a congregation, to go out into a denomination that has structures already, to understand what those structures are and what they really mean is valuable and important. That yes. they, their true meaning is as a way of ordering rightly the exercise of authority and responsibility in that function. It could be, but you see, you think the congregation must listen to me because I'm ordained. No. No, <laughs> that's wrong, you see. Or that it's my right to minister this way because I'm the appointed person. That's a failure to live rightly. But to understand what is real and important within the structures and orders is that they're a way of expressing authority and responsibility okay. over time in a group of people. But I'm more worried on Paul's point, that is, that there are people who, by teaching the Word of God, have acquired great authority within the group. Whether it's formally recognised or not formally recognised is beside the point. They've gained this authority within the group. And they can be unaware of that authority. And when you're unaware of that authority, which in one sense is good because you're humble and you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but is very dangerous because you then seek to influence people outside the realms of your appropriate authority. You, your political views become the norm of the group. Your social views become the norm of the group because your Bible teaching is so widely accepted. And it also opens up the real possibility of manipulation and tyranny because you become the one person who rules the group. And so rather than restricting your authority to the Word of God, you use the authority of the Word of God to become the ruler beyond and outside the Word of God and inappropriately in some relationships. And so to think of yourself with sober judgment is very important. And it's tricky. It's difficult. Because as a humble Christian person, you don't think you are more important than anybody else. But as a congregation member listening with appreciation 
to the teaching of a person, they will think you more important because you become very important in their lives. Which is why, as a pastor, as an overseer, as an elder, it's it's so important to keep undercutting yourself. It's so important to to not insist on titles and special seats. It's so important to dress the same as everybody else, to sit in the congregation with everybody else, to, in terms of the outward forms and structures, insofar as you can manage them, to keep downplaying that sense of my kingly rule within this group of people. Yes. Even as you recognise that you do have really important responsibilities and that you will have authority within this group of people. Yes. One, and this may be politically incorrect and undoubtedly rude, but it's one of the cultural differences uh, that is favourable to Australia and unfavourable to the United States of America. Because we have in Australia this profound tall poppy syndrome where anybody who starts to think of themselves more highly than they ought gets chopped down. In fact, anybody who does well, whether they think highly of themselves or not, gets chopped down. Whereas in America, the cultural norm is to to champion the champions, to um, create the celebrity pastor. And the celebrity pastor is its very dangerous to the celebrity. It's very dangerous to that pastor, let alone to the congregations. And sometimes I see that You know, as Jesus says, a prophet is without honour in his own country. Sometimes I see that when we have overseas speakers coming into Australia, people treat them as celebrities. They don't do that to their fellow Aussies, but they certainly do it to the overseas preachers. And I don't think it's a healthy thing because I think it distorts relationships with people. I have to say, Philip, I found it very healthy. So once a year for two weeks, I go across to America and because because I wrote this funny little book 11 years ago that a few people wrote, I, I'm a celebrity. And yes. so everybody champions me as the champion. And so I get my head gets pumped full of acclaim and encouragement and warmth for two weeks, and it does me for the whole rest of the year. Yes. <laughs> Until I come back to Australia and life is normal again. And confession is good for your soul. It is good for my soul. It is good for my soul. Yes, it's very unhelpful. I don't know how they survive in it, the the big-time pastors of America. I think it's awful. But it's not just what other people will do to us. We in ourselves have to continually, as you say, undermine our own sense, our own self, and make sure we do not allow our relationships to become distorted by a false authority or the extension of a true authority beyond its scope. Can I ask you a tricky question? If your authority as as a teacher, preacher, overseer is really the authority to teach the Word of God in this congregation, how does the authority of, of the senior teacher pastor who's doing that, how does it extend to the organization of and strategy of the group? So does that mean that his teaching authority is expressed in saying, here's where we're going under God. God is calling us to live this way, be this way, in one sense, cast a vision of how to live as God's people. But what about the decisions, the practical decisions we make as a congregation? How does his teaching authority relate to those practical decisions? Why should he have authority to decide those practical things? Yes, it's a question that puts its finger on one of the complexities of uh, Protestantism. So the role of the teacher-pastor in the Presbyterian tradition is different to the Anglican tradition and different again to the Baptist tradition. 
Within the Baptist tradition, the pastor is an employee of the elders. <laughs> Within the Presbyterian, he is one of the elders. He's the teaching elder. Within the Anglican tradition, he is the director of the church and the decisions of the church. And the eldership of, say, the parish council or something like that is, while sharing with him in the ministry, is really looking after the finances and the building rather than the direction the ministry goes. Now, the fact that you've got three different traditions within Protestant Bible belief on this very issue shows that it is one of those unresolved parts of our thinking and our way of operating. My observation is that when each of those different approaches is functioning well, they start to resemble each other. Yes. And so uh, yes. I, when, you, when, when you think of, I think of some Baptist churches I know that are very much congregationalist in their polity uh, and where, as you say, the elders call the pastor and so on and so forth. And so you'd think the pastor would be at the mercy of the congregation and the elders. But when he teaches the Bible with authority and with truth and with power, over time, that authority comes to mean something. Uh, the congregation are drawn together into a common vision built around the gospel. And it ends up being a wonderfully cooperative thing where the pastor and the elders are exercising leadership of the congregation. And yet the congregation is fully involved in owning it around a common gospel vision that emerges from the preaching. And when an, an Anglican system, I've, I haven't had much experience with Presbyterianism, but I'm from my friends, what my friends tell me, if, when it's working well, that's how it works there as well. And that's how it works well in an Anglican system as well. Yes. If the, if the, um, the minister, the rector, is an autocrat who just seeks to, to throw his weight around because he technically can, it all falls apart very quickly. Yes, that's quite right. The theory, I guess, is that if you teach the Word of God properly and thoroughly, then the building committee, the, the strategy committee, the finance committee will make godly decisions that will coalesce with each other. Around a shared gospel vision. Yes. However, humans are weak and fallible and sinful and it doesn't quite work. Always, in every circumstance, no. does it? But when we're working together, it's a great thing. You know, when the... The church committee wants to give the minister more money and the minister wants to uh, not accept more money. That's happy. When the minister wants more money and the church committee doesn't want to give him more money, that's misery. Yeah. Well, Paul, I hope in this follow-up conversation we've, we've done something to address the, the gap that you noticed in our first conversation, which is very helpful of you to do so, and thanks for getting in touch. And uh, dear listeners, I hope you do the same. Keep getting in touch and telling us what we need to talk about next that we missed last time or we raised a question that we didn't answer. Uh, that's the good thing about Christian relationship, relationship. We can keep talking with each other and exploring the truth of God's word and its implications for us. And that's obviously what we want to do here at Two Ways News. We want to bring the gospel to every aspect of what we're doing today. Philip, thanks again for being here and helping answer these questions. How about we pray as we finish? And Why, yeah. don't, why don't I pray this time? Yes, you do. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the ministry of the gospel that we've thought about and talked about today. We thank you for the privilege of being able to speak your truth, and we pray we would have the boldness and courage to speak it and teach it clearly, to teach it in all its positivity and inclusiveness, but also in its exclusiveness and in the way that the gospel critiques us and the world. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us as we do that with growth through your spirit. 
And we pray too, Father, for the complex issue of how we organize ourselves and how we handle the authority that arises from the teaching and preaching of the word. Please give us wisdom in this, Father. Help us to be humble as we serve one another with the gospel and as we teach and preach, but help us also to recognize the authority and responsibility that does come from that and to order and structure and work with each other to do that in a godly way. And we pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.